Welcome to Onward in the Faith. My name is Ray Burns, and I created a podcast and blog that equip Christians to approach every area of life with a biblical worldview. Today, we're going to be finishing up last week's discussion about who God is. In part one, we looked at the basic understanding of who are each person in the Trinity and how is it that God can exist as a Trinity. So if you haven't listened to that one, I would encourage you to go back. And today, we're going to be talking a little more specifically about each person of the Trinity, and specifically, what role do they serve in the world and in our lives? And before we start, I want to say that we can't just stick each person of the Trinity into a specific function. They're not like parts in a car where we say, well, the wheels do this specific thing, and that's it. The axle does this specific thing, and that's it. That's not how God works because God is just so full. God is complete. God is almighty. God is incredible. But we do see in the Bible the different roles that they serve in specifically redemption and salvation and bringing people to Christ. And through understanding that, we can see that based on the roles they function as or the things that they do, we can get a huge and incredible picture of how each person of the Trinity is always working towards bringing God ultimate glory for showing how incredible and majestic he truly is and how he interacts with the world and what his existence is like. So first, obviously, we're going to need to talk about God the Father. And the reason he's called Father is because he really takes on kind of the leadership role. He is sort of the head of the Trinity in a way. That's not to say that he is more important. That is not to say that everyone is lesser than him because they're not the boss. It's just that you need to have a leader, and that's the function that God the Father serves. And so what he primarily does in that leader role is he is the one that will set plans into motion. He will declare something that he wants according to his will. And so we see this all the way back in Genesis. And the one that we're going to look at is Genesis 3.15, where He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so depending on which way you take this, a lot of people think that this is sort of the early gospel where this is God talking about sending Jesus Christ. Others might say that it is the gospel itself that is crushing Satan's head. And whichever way you put it, it doesn't really matter because ultimately what God is saying here is that he is promising deliverance. He is promising victory. He is promising redemption for the law that Adam and Eve, and through them, the law that we had broken in Eden. Because that first act of disobedience set everything on a crash course towards hell. And it's only through God's direct intervention and through his plan and his will, because it brings him glory, that we can possibly do anything except get what we deserve. And so what God did then is he fulfilled this plan. So he he set the plan into motion, and then he set another plan into motion, which was to specifically send Jesus Christ to fulfill it. And we see this most popularly in John 3.16. And you can sit there and quote it with me. No one will think you're weird, probably. But John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So we see here that God is the one who sent. That is an action. That is a conscious choice that God made to do. He chose at some point in history to say, I'm not sending my son now. 
I'm not sending my son now. Now I'm sending my son. That was according to his plan and his will, and he sent Christ to fulfill it. And so the big thing to understand about the Father here is that he is equal in majesty to Christ and the Holy Spirit, but they submit to him. And that's going to rub us the wrong way. But let's look at what that looks like as we see it in the Bible. So with Christ, we see it in Matthew 26, 39. He's just about to go to the cross. He feels the weight of what's about to happen. And this verse says, And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as you will. In other words, Christ consciously said that he is submitting what he wants, what his desires are. He's pushing them inside and saying, God, not what I want, but what you want is going to be done. I submit my desires and my actions to you. And again, this isn't about God being the boss and in charge, but it's about Christ serving his purpose under the Father. Then we see this again with the Holy Spirit in John 14, 26. And we read this last time. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So here again, we see that the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father. The Father is never sent by the Holy Spirit because that's not the role that each of them plays. The Holy Spirit is in submission to the Father. And like I said, this is probably going to rub us the wrong way because our idea of submission is weakness. It's failure. It's having less power. But that's not how the Bible portrays this relationship. And so we need to push aside our understanding and our prejudices of what that looks like and what that means and see a perfect example of what submission is. You know, as we are called to submit to Christ, so Christ submitted to the Father. It wasn't a battle of wills. It wasn't about no, I'm more important. You need to listen to me and, and people butting heads. That's not what it was about. It was about God having a role that he had to fill and Christ having a role that he has to fill. And they just do it because they know that it's right and it works. And that's what God calls us to do. Whether it's children submitting to parents or wives submitting to their husbands or their husbands submitting to Christ, we all submit to someone. And that doesn't make us lesser. It doesn't make us weaker. It doesn't make us unimportant. What it does is it makes us obedient to Jesus Christ. But now let's talk about Christ. What is the role that he fills? Well, we know that he is just as eternal as God is. In John 1.1, it shows us that Christ existed in the beginning with God. It says in the beginning he was with God and was God. So we see that he's always been there. We see this further clarified in John 17, 5, where he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So here Christ is saying that he's had equal glory with God ever since time began. And before that, in eternity, they've always existed together. We see also that Christ sustains the entire universe. He holds it up. We see this in Hebrews 1, 3 which says, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So really think about that. Christ upholds the universe. It's not just that God wound up some kind of clock and stepped away. It's that Christ actively and purposely keeps things going, allows things to exist. We see also that Christ is our mediator, and we can see that if you were to go check 
1 Timothy 2.5, where we see that Christ acts with us on God's behalf. We go through Christ to God, and God interacts with us through his Son, Jesus Christ. And then a big one is that he just accomplishes the Father's plans. The Father, as we discussed, is the one who sets things going, and Christ is the one that acts on it. He is the one who completes it. And we can see this very clearly in Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And so if you think back to Genesis 1.1, the, the Trinity was there. They were working together in creation. We see that God called for the universe to be created, but it was through Christ that he did that. He accomplished his will through his Son. And if nothing else, that continues to show us just how majestic every person of the Trinity is, how equally worthy they are of glory and love. But then, perhaps most importantly and most personally for us, is that it's through Jesus Christ that we have salvation. It's through the work that he did on the cross that we have any hope of an eternal life spent with God, not as his enemies, but as his friends, as his children. Because we had crimes that needed to be punished. We have the sin that we inherited from Adam and Eve, as well as every lie, every lustful thought, every angry word we've spoken— Everything we've ever done deserves to be punished, and it's good, and it's just that God should want to punish that. But instead, Christ took our punishment instead of us. So every lie that I've told, Christ took the direct punishment for each one of those. Every thought I've had, every bout of anger, anything I've stolen, even if it's been candy from my mom's purse when I was a kid, Christ had to take the punishment for every single one of those things because I couldn't do it on my own. Only he was perfect enough to not need his own sin punished and therefore could take mine on him. And then from there, we see that the father's will or the father's desire, the father's plans are fulfilled because it's through Christ that he saves his people. And from there, we have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. All of these are according to the Father's will, but it's all done through Jesus Christ. And then once we have that faith in Jesus Christ, we're given the Holy Spirit. And so now we're going to talk about the role that he plays. And the Holy Spirit is one that can make people uncomfortable because, especially in our very rational culture, the kind of spiritual side can feel weird and un uncomfortable. But it's important for us to give the Holy Spirit every ounce of love and respect that he deserves. So the first thing to realize is that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an it. He's not some kind of impersonal power like the force in Star Wars, where the Holy Spirit is just kind of the power of God put into the world. No, the Holy Spirit is a person. And whenever he's mentioned, we see that he's mentioned on a personal level. So if we go back again to John 14, 26, Listen to the ways that the Holy Spirit is described. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So here we have twice that the Holy Spirit is referred to as a male person, which, of course, we know that God's not gendered, but he reveals himself as male. And so we see that the Holy Spirit is referred to as whom the Father will send and he will teach. And we also see that 
it's the Holy Spirit acting independently in our lives because it's the Holy Spirit who teaches us all things. And it's the Holy Spirit who brings us to remembrance. And so we see that he is an, a personal actor in the universe. He does things independently with his own thought and with his own control. And so don't call him an it and don't treat him like he's just a power because he deserves so much more understanding and love and glory than what we sometimes accidentally give him. But beyond that, we see that the Holy Spirit completes the plan established by the Father and carried out by the Son. So we've seen that God starts the plan, Christ follows through with the plan, and then it's the Holy Spirit who really brings it to an end and brings it to completion. And so we see this in that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin and our need for salvation through Jesus Christ alone. We see that in John 16, verses 8 and 9. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So here talking about it's the Holy Spirit, not our own guilt, not our own power, not our own mustering of goodness to see our sin. No, it's the Holy Spirit who brings us in any understanding of sin. In other words, without the Holy Spirit, we would still be swarming in our sin. We would be loving it. We would care nothing about the things of God without the Holy Spirit. And from there, he regenerates us on the day of salvation. And regenerate has this kind of idea of renewing what's dead or bringing us back from that spiritual death that we earned from our sin. And so we see this clearly in Titus 3.5, which says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And then we are convicted of our need for Jesus Christ. We can only call out to God because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Upon receiving salvation, we are given the Holy Spirit to regenerate us, to bring us back from loving sin and slowly turning us into people who can care about things of God, into people who want to please God, not because we need to earn our salvation, but simply because God loves righteousness and hates sin. So as his people, we want to love righteousness and hate sin. But then from there, if you were to read in Ephesians 1.13, we see that it's the Holy Spirit who seals away our salvation. And that is incredible because he is our promise. He is our guarantee. Him living within us, him showing his evidence in our lives, we can see that we are saved, not because we feel it or because we pray to prayer, but because we have the Holy Spirit showing himself in us, sealing us like a king would stamp a wax seal to keep a letter closed until the rightful person opened it. So we are sealed by the Holy Spirit and we cannot lose that salvation because it's God who gives it and it's God who seals it. We are not God. We do not have the power or the authority to remove our salvation. And that's incredible. And then from there, from that moment of salvation where we've been convicted, we've been regenerated and we've been sealed, the Holy Spirit doesn't just say, okay, good enough, good luck. No, that is when the Holy Spirit's work really begins in our lives because he makes us more like Jesus Christ and less like the world who hates him. And now we're going to really dig into a passage here. And I would really encourage you, if you have time, open up your Bible and read this for yourself because this is one of the most encouraging things for anyone's Christian walk. And so Galatians 5 and the entire passage is verses 16 through 25, but we're just going to take it in chunks and really see the incredible work of the Holy Spirit. 
So in verses 16 through 18, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So the big thing is to pull out of there is that we are called to walk by the Spirit. In other words, being saved isn't enough. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. God's not going to punish our sins. But the Christian life is about so much more than just a get-out-of-jail-free card. Now we can do what we were called to do, what we were made to do. If you've ever wondered, what's my purpose in life? What does God want for me? This is what he wants most of all, more than your job, more than your education. He wants you to walk by the Spirit first. Because when we walk by the Spirit, we're not going to carry out the desire of the flesh. Why? Because the two don't have anything to do with one another. We've lived our lives, whether you were saved when you were 5 or 30 or 50, we live our lives before Christ pursuing the world, living according to the flesh. It's only through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit that we can do anything else. And they are completely opposed to one another. They are direct opposites. And so God, for our lives, wants us to do nothing more than simply walk by the Spirit and not walk by the flesh, because they are opposed. But what does it look like to walk in the flesh and walk in the Spirit? Well, Paul goes on. So in verses 19 through 21, he gives us a glimpse of what it's like to live without the Spirit. And this applies both to how we lived our lives before salvation and regeneration, but it also serves as a reminder to us to look at our lives and say, am I in the will of God? Am I doing the things that God loves or am I doing the things that my flesh loves? And this serves as a great, although limited, way to test ourselves. And so here, Paul says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, as I said, everyone without the Holy Spirit, this is their life. Now, that means that even those people who seem like really good people and, oh, well, how could God hold this person accountable for their sin? They're such a good person. Well, in their life, there is some hint of immorality or maybe impurity. If you listen to my episode on anger, you're going to know that idolatry is something that is going to be in everyone's life because we have a radical misunderstanding of how deep idolatry runs in our hearts. But whatever it is, Maybe you can look at your life or at someone else's life and say, well, they don't seem to have any of these. But that's why Paul says, and things like these. In other words, it's not just about doing these one individual behaviors. It's about what our flesh desires and us living according to that. And that's going to look different for all kinds of different people. But we're going to be able to compare that and see how these things set themselves against God. Because as we said, they are opposites. They are against the Spirit. But then we go on and we can see what our lives look like when we are walking in obedience to the Holy Spirit. In other words, if those things that we just read about are what we generate on our own, what is it that the Holy Spirit generates in us? And in verses 22 through 25, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And so what's incredible here is that we get a real glimpse into our own hearts and into what it is that motivates what we desire and what we do in our lives. Because whatever good we do doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from our personal goodness or our sense of right and wrong or our good moral character. Because all those things bought us before Christ was hell. Our goodness means absolutely nothing. We in our flesh are not capable of generating any good. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit, in other words, what is grown as a result of the Holy Spirit in our lives are all these good things, these things that are done to please God. Because just patience on its own isn't evidence of the Holy Spirit. It's patience done because of who God is and how we see ourselves and the lives that we want to live in pleasing God. That's where true godly patience comes from. Same with every trait on here, our joy, our gentleness, our self-control. We can exercise those things on our own. But ultimately, if we're doing it to be good people, to prove to God that we can do it, to try to earn our salvation, then doing these things is going to go all the way back to idolatry, to our pride, to trying to earn something to prove that we are good. And instead, this fruit of the Spirit just comes from simple obedience and submission and saying, God, not my will, but yours be done. How should I think? How should I live this life? And it's through that humility, it's through that submission that the Holy Spirit does the greatest work in our lives. And so to wrap up this two-part discussion on who God is and who the Trinity is and what roles they play in our lives, I want to call back to that first episode where we talked about how everyone has an opinion of God. Everyone has a way of viewing God in their own lives. And a lot of people will even say, well, this is who God is to me. That may not be who he is for you, but you know, your truth is your truth. But no, that's not how it works. That can't be how it works. If God is true, there's only one truth about him. And so whatever our opinions are, it doesn't matter what I say, what you say, what your pastor says, what some famous celebrity says. What matters is, are what we're saying lining up with the Bible? Because if they're not, then we have to decide whether our opinion is more important than the divine word of God that he's given us. And I don't think we really want to run that risk of saying, no, I know God's given us this and he means for it to be everything we need for life and godliness. But here's what I think is really the truth. We don't want to play that game. I know we don't. We live that way, but when we really think about it, we see how foolish and prideful that is. So no matter how we want God to be, no matter how much of his love we want to focus on or his wrath we want to focus on, whatever aspect of him that we try to overemphasize or de-emphasize, the reality is that God is who he says he is. God is God, and that's all there is to it. And the only way that we can truly understand him, that we can truly get a deep foundational understanding of how he works, is through his word that he gave us. Whatever he's revealed about himself in that is what he means for us to know about him. If God's revealed his wrath in the Bible, we need to understand his wrath. If he's revealed his mercy and his love through Jesus Christ, there's a reason he wanted us to understand that. But we have to take them all together because they all compromise who God is. But even with that, we need to realize that we just aren't going to fully understand God. We really hammered that home with our discussion on the Trinity, that God is God and we are not. And we can get glimpses of who he is. We can have a working understanding of who he is in our own limited power, in our own limited and, and feeble minds. 
But really, Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says it best. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we're going to have things about God we're just not going to understand. But that's okay, because God has revealed himself. He's revealed everything we need to know about him. Really, he's revealed his whole character. There's no mysteries of him. The only real mystery is that we just can't comprehend certain things because they don't make sense to us. But it doesn't have to make sense. God doesn't have to be able to be shoved in a box that we're comfortable with before we can believe him. Because what God does reveal and what he does allow us to understand makes us live in awe of who he is. It makes us adore him. It makes us worship him. Because let's really think about what we know about God, just the big picture that we get of him in the Bible. The almighty God, the creator of the universe, made us. And he made us through Christ, as we saw. But when he did that, he knew that we would love sin more than we would love him, that we would choose our pride over him. But he still chose to create. And with that, in time, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be slaughtered by his very own creation. So at creation, Christ knew that these, this world he was creating would create the wood that would form his cross, that the food and vegetation would eventually create the food that would sustain the people that were going to brutalize and mock him and put him to death unfairly on the cross. But he still chose to come. He still chose to do it. He still chose to obey God and submit his will. And then after that, after Christ's death and punishment for our sins and after his glorious resurrection, he gave us the means to have the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. And it's through the Holy Spirit that we can pursue God. Even though we still have times that we're, we want to live as God's enemies and pursue our flesh and live against the Holy Spirit, we still have him in us, constantly and slowly and sometimes painfully changing us and drawing us more and more so that we can be like Jesus Christ and less like the world that we used to love so much before we were regenerated. And so we see that God is so good to people who do nothing to deserve it. He is incredible, he is mighty, but he is loving and so kind to not give us what we deserve. And so when we talk about surrendering to God and following him and submitting to his will, we don't do it because we feel like we need to do something to contribute to our salvation or to contribute to the good works that the Holy Spirit creates in us. Instead, we do any kind of good simply out of love for who God is and thankfulness for what he's done for us. And we need to remember that we can't do it on our own. It's not us that does good. It's purely through the power of the Holy Spirit that our minds get transformed. And that's why Romans 12:2 talks about don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that is so important for us as Christians is that we can't keep doing our best. We have to do the will of God. We have to submit to the authority of God and let the Holy Spirit transform us and change us and make us love God and be more like Christ because we can't do it on our own. If we could, we wouldn't need Christ. We wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. It's nothing about us. All we do is submit and obey and do it all out of love. And so this has been kind of a big look at who God is and how he works. But if we just want to boil it down, if we just want to say, okay, what does this mean to me? How am I going to let this change my life? Then I can only ask you one thing. 
knowing who God is, knowing what he's done and having a much bigger and deeper and richer understanding of how incredible and amazing he is. Go back to Galatians 5. Are you going to keep living by the flesh and pursuing your own desires? Or are you going to live according to the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, which is given to us by Christ so that we can love God with all our heart and with all our mind? If you found this discussion about who God is and what role each person of the Trinity plays in our lives valuable, or if you just want to support this podcast, I encourage you to visit patreon.com slash onward in the faith and give as little as $1 every month to keep this ministry going and growing. Links to my Patreon and an article about this episode's topic are down in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Onward in the Faith, a Christ-centered podcast for your heart and mind.